This program is intended for informational and educational purposes only. All views and opinions expressed are the views and opinions of the individuals and sponsors presenting them, and not the LTB network. Enjoy the show. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another exciting edition of Sovereign BTC, your guide to the practical side of everyday Bitcoin use. You can hear the program on Let's Talk Bitcoin's podcast network at letstalkbitcoin.com, or you can find us in the podcast feed at lrn.fm. That's a Liberty Radio Network broadcasting out of New Hampshire in the good old USA. Today we have a pretty simple program. There's just one interview, and it's a long one, and we get in-depth on the topic of Bitcoin and privacy. And this show is actually titled Bitcoin, Privacy, and You. We catch up with Kristoff Atlas. He's the author of Anonymous Bitcoin. The website's anonymousbitcoinbook.com. It's an awesome book, very thorough. Uh, I have a copy of it, and I've just started to look at it and just started to break the ground on this exciting topic. I think it's really important because one of the true promises of Bitcoin is its ability to really change the game, change the status quo. A lot of the legacy finance and currencies uh, really can't do any business without having the man breathing down your neck. So there's a lot of promise that comes with Bitcoin. However, there's also a lot of misunderstandings. Um, Bitcoin, just using it normally, isn't necessarily anonymous. In fact, it's rather public and transparent with everything being kept on the blockchain. But as you'll find in this book and you'll find in this interview, if you go through some great lengths and make sure you dot your I's and cross your T's, you can find relative anonymity using Bitcoin. It's just going to take a little bit of work. And we talk about some of the tips and tools that Kristov has learned over the years uh, to do just that. So first, I want to thank one of the sponsors of the program, Bitmain Technology. You can check them out at bitmaintech.com. They are a mining manufacturer. They created the Antminer S1 and now the Antminer S2, which is a thousand gigahash at a thousand watts. It's a wonderful, efficient machine. You can check them out at bitmaintech.com. Again, this is the only interview on the program, so I want to thank you for tuning in, folks. Coming up next week, we'll be bringing you Into the Minds, which was a segment a lot of people appreciated, and we're going to keep doing it for you here on the Sovereign BTC program. So without further ado, folks, here's the interview I conducted with Christoph Atlas on Anonymous Bitcoin. We're joined by Christoph Atlas. He's a philosopher, entrepreneur, and security expert. He holds a BS in computer science and an MS in computer science with a focus on security. And he's way into Bitcoin, and he recently released a book. The book is titled Anonymous Bitcoin, and I have a copy of it, first edition, How to Keep Your Bitcoin All to Yourself. It looks really exciting. It's very thorough and comprehensive. Can't wait to really dig deep inside and apply a lot of what I learned. And we're going to chat with him today about an overview of the information that's included in the book and why Bitcoin anonymity is important to you. Christoph, thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me on. Excellent. I like to start by uh, asking a lot of people I interview, how did you get into Bitcoin? How did you first hear about it and why are you so passionate about it? Well, I think the the first time that I heard about Bitcoin is pretty typical um, you know, I'm kind of a tech nerd myself, but the first time that I heard about Bitcoin, I was like, oh, you know, this is money for nerds. That's cool. Um, I don't really feel like I'm spending the time to get into this right now because I'm sure it's not going to go anywhere. And uh, after hearing about it a couple times more and seeing the price go up, you know, another 10 or 100 fold or whatever <laughs> it was from the first time, then I started paying attention to it. And I'm also really passionate about philosophy and about uh, liberty. And it was after the second or third time that I heard about Bitcoin that I realized that there was a really important intersection between um, you know, technology, security stuff, which I'm interested in, and also the liberty stuff when it comes to Bitcoin. It's a pivotal technology mm-hmm. when it comes to human freedom. And so that's what really captured my attention. Awesome. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about it, just the, the prospects that it has to really disrupt the status quo and give people ownership of their, their value and their wealth and the ability to exchange without a centralized service. So tell me, what inspired you to write this book? Why is Bitcoin anonymity important to you? Well, I was seeing a lot of kind of folklore uh, or misconceptions about exactly how much privacy Bitcoin um, has when, you know, kind of out of the box and in the way that people are typically using it right now. Um, And, you know, when you see media reports about Bitcoin, something that gets mentioned a lot is that it's this anonymous currency, 
being used by you know shadowy parts of the internet and so forth um, that it's going to be um, you know it's immediately some kind of epic tool for tax evasion things things along those lines and really this is completely false um, Bitcoin has a fairly open design and in terms of uh, what it's disclosing to the public and so I really wanted to clarify for people exactly what is the state of privacy with regards to Bitcoin and I also wanted to give people a set of instructions that help them use it as with as much privacy as possible. I didn't want my the end of my statement to be, well, there's not much privacy if you're using it the way that people typically use it. And, uh, you know, because I'm really passionate about Bitcoin. I think people should use it. But um, you do need to take some extra steps if you want to use it with some financial privacy in mind. Yeah, I like to say Bitcoin is relatively anonymous. Do you think it's just a general misnomer to say that the statement Bitcoin is anonymous? Well, uh, you know, I was just reading this article by John Matanis from the Bitcoin Foundation this morning, and um, he was talking about how uh, people, uh, demagogues, and how pundits try to take control over language mm-hmm. by the words that we use to talk about things. And so he was talking about, um, you know, all these different words with regard to Bitcoin and, and that word choices that that people are using to try and undermine Bitcoin. So, for example, um, when we talk about privacy, people like to talk about it in terms of anonymity. And people don't understand what anonymity means. It sounds like kind of a shadowy term. It could be something illicit or uh, illegitimate somehow. Um, also talk about you know personal per- purchases, purchases that we want to be personal and kept to ourselves are called untraceable transactions. Mm-hmm. And financial privacy is money laundering. And financial surveillance is not bad. It's actually anti-money laundering and know your customer guidelines and stuff like that. So I think that the language that you use to talk about Bitcoin is important. And I use, you know, I use financial privacy. I use anonymity. But really, anonymity is a matter. It's kind of a mathematical concept. It's the number of people for a given action that you could be confused with mm. uh, in terms of um, you know, pointing the finger at a particular person who is responsible for an action. And so um, you could use uh, Bitcoin with a high degree of uh, anonymity, but it does require some additional steps to take. If you're just using it in the way that most people are using, it's actually you have a fairly low degree of anonymity mm-hmm. and um, the, you know, the financial privacy uh, leaves something to be desired, I would say. So you said one factor that goes into anonymity is being able to disguise yourself with a large group of people. What are some of the necessary elements to be anonymous, whether it's financial transactions, business dealings, or just in your personal life? What do you think are some of the necessary elements? What exactly is anonymity and how would you define it? Well, it's being able to blend in with a crowd. And so in order to use something anonymously, you you necessarily need to have a crowd to sort of jump in with. And uh, when it comes to the internet, we have a a number of different fundamental tools for achieving this. Um, one of them is privacy networks, and in that category, you might have put something like a VPN, a virtual private network service that you can, uh, you know, people often use to hide their traffic when they're downloading torrents or something like that. There's also the Tor uh, onion routing network, and another one called I2P, which is pretty similar. And these are all ways of uh, temporarily assuming someone else's identity on the internet, particularly with respect to what's called their IP address, which is this you know kind of identifier that um, identifies you uniquely when you're connecting to the internet. And so, by adopting someone else's <clears throat> uh, the identity, uh, you're able to. Uh, kind of throw someone off the scent from from yourself. And if lots of people are using these networks, then you have a crowd that you can hide in. Awesome. Now, why would someone want to own Bitcoin anonymously? What are some of the benefits for Bitcoin users? Well, I think there could be quite a few motivations. One is just um, getting to back to par with the legacy financial system that we're coming out of. Um, you know, when you get a, if you work for a company and you get a paycheck every week or a direct deposit or whatever, <clears throat> you don't expect that your boss is going to be able to track what you're spending your money on after that just because he's the one that sent you a paycheck. But that is kind of how it could work with Bitcoin. 
if you're not careful and you're being paid with Bitcoin because your boss is you know, sending you some Bitcoins from his address to yours and then he can follow where those Bitcoins go on from there. And so if you're not taking some extra steps, then he could potentially uh, you know, decipher some of the information that he'll see in the blockchain, which is the public ledger of Bitcoin, and you know, figure out who you're sending that money to, uh, possibly what you're purchasing based on the amounts that you're spending and so forth. And so just getting back to, to par in terms of financial privacy, I think it's a really good reason to, uh, to take some extra steps when it comes to cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. Um, you know, if you are sort of a freedom-leaning person, then you may, uh, you may not be a, a really big fan of the government uh, surveilling your spending. Um, you may want to have privacy from people like the government or corporations or, you know, these other large organizations that have a financial incentive or other kind of incentive to track where your money is going. And uh, I think that we all kind of, we know that there are some things that we, we purchase that are, you know, need to be temporarily secret or permanently, permanently secret. Um, so something that, you know, could be temporary, temporarily secret would be like a, an engagement ring. You know, if you have a, mm-hmm. sh- a shared, uh, account with your partner, and you want to pop the question as a surprise, then uh, you might want to to make the purchase surreptitiously. Um, nice. And obviously, once you <laughs> once you reveal that, then it doesn't need to be secret to your partner any longer. Um, and some people are in more you know severe situations. If you're a blogger in let's say North Korea or something like that, mm-hmm. trying to reveal things about the regime there, then privacy is really, really important to you. And if you're you know, making a living off of donations through the internet, then financial privacy is also very interesting to you because there are mm-hmm. life and death consequences in that kind of scenario. So if you, whether you are a person that needs to keep something secret or you believe in you know, the pr- financial privacy as kind of a, a fundamental human right and you want to be able to support people that need financial privacy, then um, when it, when you when you use currencies in a private fashion, you're actually helping to support the infrastructure that allows people to use things privately. Again, it's all about being able to blend in the crowd, and so by jumping into the crowd, you're making the crowd a little bit larger and helping out the people that absolutely need it. Right on. Those are a lot of really practical examples. I, I like the example of the engagement ring. You know, it's not always nefarious why you would want to have this this privacy in these purchases there's a lot of practical applications that your everyday american and everyday citizen would be able to to utilize and um, i think it's also a good example to point out uh, bloggers or people that are in regimes that frown upon pushing for a change in the status quo even here in the wonderful free country of america uh, antiwar.com came under investigation from the FBI. I think they've been investigated for years, decades now, really. And uh, they really lost some donors. And, you know, some people didn't want to be associated with that. Uh, large-scale donors, large executives uh, didn't want to have anything to do with that. So they started accepting Bitcoin, and that helps clear out that uh, that scrutiny for the donors. Same thing with WikiLeaks, of course. So yeah, I think there's immense value, especially if you're trying to shake up the status quo and, and implement some regime change, so to speak. So tell me about some of the challenges to Bitcoin anonymity. I know a lot of people, uh, again, that term is thrown out there, and it's mainly used a lot by the mainstream media in order to demonize and, and create fear around the idea of Bitcoin. But just looking at your book and based on my initial research, it's it's not as easy as it seems to to become anonymous in your use of, of the currency Bitcoin. Can you talk about some of the challenges? Yeah, absolutely. So one of them is based on the design of Bitcoin, which is around this, this blockchain and this open ledger of all the transactions. If we have a public ledger of all the transactions that shows, um, you know, which account the bitcoins are coming from, which one they're going to, what the exact amounts are, and the exact uh, date and time that's associated with them. That's a lot of information to track finances. Mm -hmm. And so we need some additional tools in order to uh, kind of counteract the effect of having such an open ledger system. One of them is a piece of technology that we call colloquially Bitcoin mixers or a Bitcoin laundry service or whatever you want to call it. And this is a service that is going to help obscure the flow of Bitcoins on the blockchain. 
there's a number of different ways that they can go about doing it. They can try to do off-chain accounting. They can uh, you know, try to form these transactions that involve lots of people and, and kind of blend it in with the crowd that way. But fundamentally, it's all about um, making it harder to track Bitcoins from address to address on the blockchain. One of the other challenges is around um, just being able to connect to the internet anonymously. Most of us connect to the internet through internet service providers, and there aren't that many of them actually in the United States. Um, where I live, there's only like two that you can really choose from. Mm-hmm. They're all uh, in bed with the government. You know, they all funnel their data straight to the the NSA at their beck and whim, and. Uh, you know, and, and then I have a cell phone where it goes through, you know, a couple different phone companies which are in the same same ballpark. So you need to be able to use a privacy network um, like Tor. And historically, Tor has been a technology that's not been very accessible to the everyman. Uh, luckily, we have had a couple projects in the last few years that have improved on that. We've got the Tor browser and we've got the Tails um, Linux operating system. And these are two ways that make it really easy for people to get onto the Tor network without having to do a lot of configuration and modifying files and all this stuff. So I'd say the two fundamental things are uh, privacy networks and mixing technology when it comes to financial privacy for cryptocurrencies. Tell me about some of the mixing services that you would recommend. And then also uh, tell me a little bit more about this Tor browser and where I'd be able to find that and use that. Sure. So... um, there are lots of different ways that you can do the mixing, and they've been maturing uh, quickly over time. Um, one of the the mixers that I'm a big fan of is Bitcoin Fog, and uh, that's a, a Tor hidden service, so you can only access it through the Tor network. And they do a good job of um, you know doing some off chain accounting and so forth, and uh, making it hard to track bitcoins. And they introduce randomness in a bunch of different ways and they seem to be a fairly reliable service. Now the problem with a, a service like a Bitcoin Fog is that they they belong in this first generation of mixers. I've written about this and, and John Matanas has written about this as well, sort of a taxonomy of these mixers. And we can kind of divide them up into different generations. And the first generation of mixers are these just these wallet services that we have to trust. We send them some Bitcoins, they send some back minus a fee and we have to trust them to do two very important things. We have to trust them not to just steal our Bitcoins and run off with them. And we also have to trust that they're not going to do some record keeping, uh, logging the relationship between where you're sending the Bitcoins from to them and where they're going in the future. And those are two, those are two very major things that we need to trust services with. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so far, Bitcoin Fog seems to have a pretty good track record. But really, we'd prefer to move away from that type of framework and go to a more peer-to-peer, more distributed, uh, more trustless kind of system. Yeah. And so th- there are more and more um, software products that are working on this kind of thing. I'm not sure if any of them are really ready for prime time yet. One that I think is worth mentioning is actually an altcoin called Darkcoin, and they have a technology uh, that's uh, called DarkSend, and it's taking this more peer-to-peer approach where rather than sending someone your your dark coins in this case, um, you kind of uh, get together on the same place and time on the internet with some other Darkcoin users, form uh, these tra- transactions through somewhat complicated cryptographic protocols. Um, using your, your your dark coin client, you don't have to you know type anything in or anything like that, and um, you kind of mix your coins together with these other dark coin users, and that's good not only for dark coin users but also for Bitcoin users too because there are all these um, cryptocurrency exchanges where you can exchange your bitcoins for dark coin, and so you can kind of use um, dark coin as a mixer even if you're not going to stay in that currency you can kind of jump into dark coin mix and jump back out into bitcoin nice. so that's that's pretty good um, and in terms of you know the tor browser tor browser uh, used to be called the tor browser bundle they just changed the name of that but it's just um you know some simple it's a web browser that you can download it's available for mac uh, linux and windows of course and uh, you just download it. It's a web browser. You use it pretty normally. But uh, when it first starts up, it will connect to the Tor network. So it's a really simple way to put all of your web traffic through the Tor network nice. and kind of hide your IP address from uh, stooping people. Nice. I don't know what I've been doing using Firefox and 
Chrome <laughs> all these years. <laughs> Seems pretty simple. Uh, you mentioned off-chain accounting a few times. What exactly do you mean by that term? Well, so when you send a normal Bitcoin transaction, this is going to be logged in the blockchain. And it will say, this is who it's, you know, Bitcoin sent from this address to that address. And this is the exact amount. Here's the date and time. Now, if you do some off-chain accounting, what you can do is, um, let's say you have a, a service. It could even be a service that's not doing mixing per se, but just a, a hot wallet service like Coinbase. So you send Coinbase some, some Bitcoins, and they credit that to your account. And really, it just goes into a big, giant pool of Bitcoins that they have. And they need to kind of pool Bitcoins in this way because they keep most of their funds in uh, offline uh, addresses uh, in cold storage to make sure they're more safe from theft. And then if you ever want to take your Bitcoins out of Coinbase, it's going to you know, come out somewhere out of that pool. And so um, you won't be able to easily follow um, through Coinbase, the series of transactions going into Coinbase and then eventually coming out because they have their own little ledger that's outside of the blockchain figuring out what the customer fund balances are at. Mm. And so that's sort of an example of off-chain accounting and it can be used as a means of mixing. That's exactly how Bitcoin Fog works as well, except they're explicitly do it for, doing it for the purpose of providing financial privacy as opposed to um, you know, doing some off-chain accounting because they're an exchange or, or whatever. Can you tell me a little bit more about VPN? How would I go about using VPN? What exactly is it? What are the benefits? Well, a VPN service is just a way of putting one extra step between yourself and the rest of the internet. Um, and lots of users will use the same VPN, so they'll all short, sort of share the same IP address most often. And you can also, you know, usually get a VPN service that's going to allow you to connect to the internet from some country outside of your country of origin. So if you're concerned specifically about, um, you know, if you live in the United States and you're concerned about being spied on by some uh, U.S. agency that only has access to U.S. companies, then you could get a VPN service that's going to let you connect through the internet in Brazil. And it's going to encrypt all of your traffic between your home and Brazil. And then from there, it will connect to the internet normally, whether it's unencrypted or not. Nice. So, um, but when it comes to Bitcoin, I think that we want to use even more sophisticated uh, private networks. Uh, Tor is a really good one. I2P is another one that's worth looking into. I think Tor is the, the one that's the most robust right now. And that kind of takes it to the next level because it's not just uh, lots of people using um, the same IP address. It's uh, you know it's this peer-to-peer based way of connecting to the internet, and the advantage of that is um, you know if you have a VPN, someone that wants to get access to your internet records, all they have to do is they have to hack or you know uh, uh, legally access just one central point of failure, which is your VPN company. Mm. Um, whereas Tor, there's no one to subpoena, there's no nice. one person to hack it. It requires a much broader effort in order to try and obtain this data. Um, for someone that's using the Tor network, so and of course Tor is also free. There are some uh, there are some potential bandwidth issues there, and whatnot, and usability issues. But um, when you're going for robust uh, privacy, then you definitely want to go with something like the Tor network. Nice. It just occurred to me, um, for about two years or so, my wife and I did some really uh, deep research on the Department of Homeland Security Fusion Center system, which is the multi-jurisdictional law enforcement, information gathering, and intelligence sharing apparatus. It's essentially Big Brother in action. They're the ones that put out a lot of these reports that uh, we have like a DHS Jeff Foxworthy joke. If you try to hide your identity on the internet, you might be a terrorist. And, and time and time again, uh, in their little reports and their uh, the profiles they put out and, and these learning guides for law enforcement, they always indicate that if, if you're trying to hide your identity or if you're using services like Tor, uh, that you could potentially be a domestic terrorist. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Do, I mean, do you find that to be absurd? Um, do you think they have a legitimate claim? And is that something that you're concerned with, uh, the, the, the very idea that using these services may draw some scrutiny? It's kind of a paradox. You know, you're using them to avoid the ire of the state or other types of criminals. But in doing so, it's possible that uh, it could raise red flags. What are your thoughts on that? Well, let me address the, the claim about um, linking privacy or anonymity to uh, criminal behavior. 
Um, this is not a serious intellectual position. And <laughs> I think anyone that's going to take their cues on um, <laughs> information and intellectual positions from DHS <laughs> is in a really tough spot. Um, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not where you want to be. Um, there is this essay that was written uh, by a legal scholar a while ago that I think is quite good. It's called um, I've Got Nothing to Hide and Other Misunderstandings of Privacy by Daniel J. Salom, I believe is his name. And basically what he says in there is like, look, this is not, <laughs> this is a ridiculous position to take that um, if, you've, if you think you've got nothing to hide, then you, you don't need privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, the fundamental problems with this, there, there's two problems. One is that there are people constantly that are being um, bothered and bullied and harassed uh, for things that they didn't actually do. Um, you know, there was, a, there was a, a law professor a while ago who said that there's basically isn't a single person over the age of 18 in the United States that couldn't be uh, indicted on some kind of federal charge because the, the laws are so vast and we, we don't even know all of the laws. We, we can't even count all the federal laws that are on the books uh, there are just you know tens of thousands that are being passed each new year, mm-hmm. and so no one can stay a hundred percent compliant. And if you happen to get on the bad side of someone that's in power, then you can be in a really tough spot unless you are able to do things in a private fashion. Um, and also, you know, even if that doesn't happen, if you don't happen to be one of the unlucky ones, you're kind of throwing other people under the bus when you make that kind of statement. To say that, well, if you're not doing anything wrong, you've got nothing to hide. I mean, there's so there's countless numbers of examples of people that have been unjustly accused of uh, different crimes, and of course, there's all these crimes that are actually plainly illegal, but are not mm-hmm. actually violating any kind of moral law. Yeah, uh, so-called victim victimless crimes as well. That's right. So I think that's a really difficult and problematic uh, position to take. And it's clearly, this is a position that's in the, the best interest of people working in uh, places like DHS and not a, a serious attempt to look at the morality of the situation. Nice. Very nicely put. So tell me, if I'm looking to buy Bitcoin and I want to do it as anonymously as possible, what are some of the best routes I can explore? Buying Bitcoin anonymously is very difficult. What I generally recommend people do is they buy Bitcoin however suits them best, and then they attempt to anonymize the Bitcoins after the fact. Um, The reason is that most of the ways that you can exchange uh, fiat currency for cryptocurrencies is going to be highly regulated. Um, Companies, especially if they're anywhere in the United States or in the Western world or um, in many other places in the world, uh, they are subject to some pretty stiff uh, financial surveillance laws. I'm going to say financial surveillance instead of uh, anti-money laundering or know your customer. <laughs> and um, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, Andreas Antonopoulos, who says, um, you know, we do not need know your customer laws. We need we need know your banker laws because these are the people that are actually uh, fund. They're actually you know, funneling money for violent drug cartels yeah. in the millions of dollars every year and uh, don't really suffer any consequences for it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I think actually trying to um, do it after the fact, I mean, you can try to do it more anonymously if you're going to go to an ATM or um, go on something like localbitcoins.com mm-hmm. where you can exchange bitcoins for cash or whatever. But, of course, you don't know who these people are that you're transacting with. If you go to an ATM, you don't know if there's been a video camera set up that's surveilling it. Mm-hmm. So it's really difficult to actually purchase cryptocurrencies in a fashion that I would call anonymous. It's actually much easier to use the existing anonymity technology to uh, kind of disappear your money once you've got it in this digital form rather than the, um, you know, the, the, there's a point of weakness between uh, taking your, your money in other formats and converting it to a digital format. Right on. Now, uh, one way to acquire Bitcoins is to purchase them through exchanges or an ATM or through local Bitcoins, as you said. Another way to bring uh, Bitcoins into your possession is through mining. Can you talk about Bitcoin mining as it relates to anonymity? And can you mine in a manner that is uh, not on the radar of the state or of any potential criminals, public or private criminals, I like to say? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I've actually, you know, I've heard pretty often, I hear less and less of this over time because people are kind of figuring it out, but I used to hear a lot that people are saying, well, I want to have my Bitcoins anonymous and so I'm going to mine them. And that may have been sort of true at one point in the long distant future, um, you know, in terms of Bitcoin, Bitcoin age, long distant future being, you know, a couple of years ago. But uh, the, the issue with this, so the, the benefit of doing this is if you mine the Bitcoins, then there's no previous transactions for those Bitcoins. Uh, there's no path to follow to where, you know, to, to the, they just kind of blink into existence when you mine them on the, on the blockchain. So that's a benefit. You, of course, do have to, as soon as you send those Bitcoins anywhere, if you spend them, send them to other people, then um, there is the, the problem of whether they can be traced back to you as the miner. But the mining space is so highly competitive at this point that I don't think it's a very practical way for people to do it. There's actually a relatively small number of um, organizations in the world that are mining the Bitcoins, whether they're pools or whatever. And um, so, you know, if, if there's only, you know, 10 places in the world that have these massive uh, ASIC mining factories or whatever, then there's not actually that many people to, uh, to try and look up as suspects if you're trying to figure out who mined a, a given Bitcoin. So I don't think that's a very practical uh, approach and of course, if you're going to be a Bitcoin miner, it's a you know hugely competitive field. It's difficult and complex and expensive, and there's little guarantee that you're going to be profitable in that enterprise. Um, with some, maybe some some of the smaller altcoins that have come up, this might be a more practical way of doing things. If you have a, a GPU miner, you will still have to do the mining through um, a privacy network such as Tor or a VPN or whatever to make sure that you're not leaving this uh, internet trail for other people to, to find. Um, and you will also still have to deal with this matter of, well, will your Bitcoins spent in the future be able to be tr traced back to you unless you take some extra method uh, steps in order to protect yourself? So I don't think that mining is really an effective way of uh, providing anonymity. Now, the exception to this is there are some proposals for actually using mining as a, a, an additional layer to um, kind of re, remix coins in the Bitcoin network. Um, this is kind of a highly technical topic, so I'm not going to try and explain it here. But um, So that's, that's not a matter of people mining their Bitcoins for an anonymity. It's a matter of using the existing mining infrastructure to provide anonymity to other people. So uh, bottom line, uh, don't try to do it through mining. Just find some other means to try and get your, your money anonymously. Now, what if someone's already mining for other purposes besides setting up anonymity? Um, is it possible to have a, a wallet, or I'm sorry, a, an address, a Bitcoin address that Bitcoins are sent to from a mining service or some other third party, and they're instantly mixed before they make their way to the uh, intended address? Is that is that are there any mixing services that work that way, or is that something that you have to already have? And then send to the mixing service through through the mixing service to the uh, intended address. Um, I guess you could set up your mining uh, software such that the bitcoins that are credited to you for mining would be deposited into uh, a mixing account or something like that, and then you could withdraw it from the mixer. So you could do it in a relatively um, streamlined fashion. That way, again, these would be services that you necessarily have to trust not to abscond with your bitcoins, mm -hmm. um, and so that's that's kind of uh, tricky. But you know, it, it's certainly doable. It's not the way that I would recommend the average person doing. But um, you know, if you're already mining, then there are some steps that you can take like that to uh, do it a little bit more anonymously. Do the mixing services? Some of them double as a bitcoin wallet as well. Um, I suppose you could use them as a Bitcoin wallet. I generally don't see people doing that. Um, you know, usually when I see people using Bitcoin wallets, they are using them to transact easily with other people that they meet in person, stores that they go to, um, stuff that they're purchasing online. You know, really these hot wallets or these wallets that we keep connected to the internet are places where you should only keep a small amount of Bitcoins mm -hmm. because they're, you know, they're kind of analogous to the wallet that you would keep in your, your pocket. And so, um, you know, the, the, the catch is if you're going to be buying stuff from the internet 
and uh, or meeting up with people in person. These are all cha- challenges to anonymity because you're showing up and you know showing your face or attaching your name or mm-hmm. your mailing address to things that you're buying online. And so I generally don't see people using mixing services uh, casually as wallets because um, you know they're they're kind of antithetical to each other. One is for casual out in the open purchases, and another one is for financial privacy. Right on. Uh, in your book, you talk a lot about JavaScript. Can you tell me uh, why JavaScript is dangerous to anonymity, uh, anonymity, and as well, what are some other things to look out for that might raise red flags that the service or the web browser you're using may not be as secure as you would like? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, JavaScript is you know the the scripting technology that's built into web browsers, and you can do some pretty advanced stuff with it. And it turns out that you can use JavaScript to obtain all kinds of information about the web browser that's connecting to a particular website. So you know a a, a person is logging in through the web browser to a website. The website um, will return a an HTTP response that includes all of the the website content. And if there's some JavaScript in there, then that can be executed and feed some information back to the web server itself. If you want an abject lesson and exactly how you know what the effect of this is, um, you can look up the Electronic Frontier Foundation's Panopticlick project. You go there, and uh, they'll tell you um, they'll they'll tell you about your browser fingerprint, which is basically what how, what your your web browser looks like to their to their website and how unique it's going to be. And unless you have JavaScript and a bunch of other stuff disabled, um, almost 100% of the time when you visit the website, you will have a unique browser fingerprint mm-hmm. that can uniquely identify and identify you on the internet. And that's regardless of whether you're using something like a VPN or Tor or anything else like that, because uh, these are all traits of the browser and not, you know, your IP address in particular. So uh, that's that's kind of the danger of JavaScript. So the way that we're around that is to, d- to disable JavaScript. Um, there are some good plugins on different uh, browsers that you can use to disable JavaScript. One is NoScript for Mozilla Firefox. There's another one called ScriptSafe for Google Chrome. And um, when you use um, kind of all-in-one packages for connecting to Tor, whether that's the Tails uh, operating system or whether it's the Tor uh, browser bundle, both of them uh, disable or they they include facility to disable JavaScript and they try to make their browser as bland as possible so that you can your your browser fingerprint is going to look identical to all the other people that are using Tor browser or Tails Linux. And so these it's all about your 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 browser fingerprint and you want to make yourself look as bland and alike the alike to the crowd as possible when you're connecting to the internet if you want to have privacy. Okay. Let's talk about cold storage paper wallets or just cold storage in general. What exactly is cold storage and why is it beneficial for someone that's looking to maintain financial privacy? Well, to understand cold storage, the fundamental concept that you have to understand is the private key. And the private key is this piece of secret information that allows you to spend your Bitcoins from a particular address. Each Bitcoin address has its own private key. And that can be put in one place. It can be split up and, and put into multiple places. You can even have multi-signature addresses where you know it's sort of broken up amongst multiple people or multiple entities. But fundamentally, there there is this private key that you need to spend bitcoins. You can send bitcoins to a Bitcoin address without needing the private key. But the the, the private key is kind of like the key to the vault that is your Bitcoin address. And so the question is, where are you going to store the secret information? If you put it on your computer, then it's prone to being stolen by malware or hackers or those kind of threats. And so cold storage is about taking that private key, removing it from any, removing any copies that you still have computers uh, that are connected to the internet and putting it in a place that's offline, that's um, in some medium that cannot be touched by the internet. Paper wallets are a very popular way of doing that. Obviously, if you print something out on paper, you remove the digital copy. Paper is completely and utterly not connected to the internet, and so there's no way for your paper wallet to get infected with malware. Um, And there are other ways of doing cold storage as well, but uh, paper wallets are kind of the most simple 
and um, most convenient way of doing it right now. Part of the reason why paper wallets are so popular is because the uh, the hardware that we have available for storing bitcoins is pathetically behind the times, uh, and this is evident because we've we've reverted back to paper. You know, and everywhere mm-hmm. else in our lives, we're trying to get rid of paper. Um, if I get something in the mail, I'll scan it in and throw out the the paper. If I get um, you know, a statement from my bank, I'm like, no, go paperless. But <laughs> in the Bitcoin space, we've reverted back to paper where like, you know, it's like that, that the evolution from the monkey to man, we've gone back a step to Crow Magnum. And what we need is hardware wallets. They're, they're coming in the near future. We've got the Trezor that's shipping out uh, pretty soon and stuff like that. But, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a half measure <laughs> until we have some better digital devices that are properly hardened uh, to store Bitcoins in a more safe fashion. How can you generate the public and private key in a, in a totally cold fashion? My understanding is that you you set up a computer that never touches the internet with Linux on it, and then there's a piece of software that you can load onto that computer that will generate the addresses that uh, that you can use on the blockchain. Is that is it as simple as that? Yeah, absolutely. So the computer can either be a computer that you're just going to never connect to the internet again. That's, that's fine if you have a, a spare computer to dedicate to that task. Another way of doing it is you can um, boot into kind of like a temporary operating system with data that it's only going to exist until you shut down the computer. Uh, this is kind of a, a live boot configuration. That's what we call it. And traditionally, this is done with um, some type of Linux operating system, uh, very much like the Tails Linux operating system, but there's also Ubuntu and, and you know all these other ones. And the idea here there is that rather than dedicating a computer to just staying offline all the time, you can kind of uh, boot into this this Linux operating system, and it's going to be in kind of a known safe configuration because you're you're you've installed Linux on this uh, you know a USB drive or a DVD or whatever it is. And you make sure that it doesn't touch the internet until you shut down the computer. All of the data is kind of wiped away because it was only living on the USB drive or in, in resident memory. And that's where you can do your, your generation of Bitcoin uh, addresses and private keys. Um, a tool that's very often used for that generation process is bitaddress.org, I believe it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's for, for paper wallets. So the idea would be that you know you, you download bitaddress.org, that you save it as a web page, you put it on a USB stick or a DVD, hmm. and um, then you you load it up on your offline computer or in your, your Linux operating system that's in a live boot configuration. Everything's offline. You do your, your you generate your address and your private key. You put that somewhere that's not going to touch the internet, and uh, and then you you keep it that way. What are the chances in the time that it takes to set that up and generate that offline public address and private key that someone has generated the same public address online? Oh, it's vanishingly small. I mean, um, you know, it, it's, it, we're more likely to hit the, the heat death of the universe before two people accidentally <laughs> um, generate the same private key. The one exception to that is when you use kind of non-standard versions of Bitcoin software where they have incorrectly implemented their cryptographic algorithms. Um, so this happened, for example, with one of the Android-based Bitcoin clients. And the problem was that they were using a library in a way that was uh, not quite correct. The, lab, the people that wrote the software library didn't properly document it, I guess. And so... They thought that they were generating um, truly random uh, private keys, but it turns out that the there was only about two to the forty or something like that uh, different private keys that they were generating. Mm. Still a large number, but it's actually something that is crackable by computers that we have today. Whereas a standard private key is something more on the order of two to the one sixty uh, different private keys that you can possibly generate. And so, if you're doing that in a, in a truly random fashion. And you can you can be um, quite confident that you're going to be doing it in a random fashion if you are using, you know, a standard a Bitcoin client on an uncompromised computer. Um, then that it's just never going to happen. But you know, do keep in mind that, um, you know, if you're concerned about uh, more advanced actors that are going to go after large piles of money, what they could try to do is rather than trying to subvert your Bitcoin client, they'll try to mess with your operating system's ability to. Um, to 
to generate randomness or entropy. And that would be a way that they could get access to your Bitcoins by, by reducing the, the number of possible uh, private keys that you could generate with that computer. And uh, they could do that with a hardware backdoor, um, you know, some, something along those lines. Interesting. I guess the off chance that the same private key does pop up, both people that have it would gain access to the same wallet. Is that correct? That's right. Okay. All right. And it would be, you'd get the exact same Bitcoin address because the, the Bitcoin address is derived in a completely deterministic fashion from the private key. Okay. Uh, before we let you go, tell us about the future of Bitcoin anan- anonymity. anonymity. Do you think it's going to be easier in the future to to maintain privacy with your financial dealings when using Bitcoin? Or do you think that there will be further scrutiny and government regulation that will make it harder, especially for the firms that are offering some of these services? And then again, talk a little bit more about the decentralized exchanges and the prospect of of consistency with Bitcoin. Because Bitcoin's a decentralized application, but there's a lot of centralized firms within Bitcoin. Of course, we can see what happens when those firms go the way of Mt. Gox. So I think a lot of the promise for the future lies in these decentralized exchanges that can't be shut down. There's no way to lean on anyone. Can you talk about that dichotomy? Yeah, absolutely. So all of this, these issues related to centralization are a symptom of the fact that we are coming out of a legacy system that is completely centralized. A lot of us are still thinking in centralized terms and doing things in a centralized way is kind of the easiest to implement off the bat. And so Bitcoin is this new, uh, this new technology. And when people come out with the, the first versions of whatever software that they're coming out with in the Bitcoin space, it's natural that they're going to try a centralized approach first. And of course, we're seeing that we're being reminded of all of the issues with a centralized approach to finances, like Mt. Gox, that they're a perfect example of that. And so over time, we're going to be pushed towards more and more decentralized examples, um, uh, ways of implementing these technologies. Um, so that's going to include decentralized exchanges where, where we are buying and selling Bitcoins for fiat, for uh, other cryptocurrencies, for gold and silver on a person-to-person basis as, a, as opposed to with a, some, some business. Uh, there may be a business that acts as kind of a trusted partner or an arbitrage um, or an escrow, but they won't be the ones that we're sending all of our money to and, and kind of funneling them through in a centralized fashion. And we'll also see more and more decentralized versions of uh, technology privacy, uh, sorry, privacy technologies as well. Um, mixing is going to be more and more decentralized. Um, there's a lot of talk about including a decentralized mixing uh, technology into the standard Bitcoin client uh, in a, a an algorithm or a protocol called CoinJoin. Uh, that's something that's been talked about for quite a while. We also have some some other uh, privacy technologies coming down the road with Bitcoin along the lines of stealth addresses and uh, more use of uh, hierarch- hierarchical deterministic wallets and so forth. So there's lots of stuff that's coming into the Bitcoin space that's going to make it easier and easier to use it in, in a private fashion. I'm also working really hard with other people to try and make sure that all these different technologies are mutually compatible to make sure that my Bitcoin client you know, can connect to the Tor network and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I think that what I see in my generation is that people are more and more uh, sensitive to surveillance and censorship. And they want to be able to do things in a free fashion. And I see this even from people that are not self-identified libertarians or anarchists or or something like that. Um, I really see a a change in perspective on the subject. I think there's going to be huge demand for privacy technologies. I think that people are going to be more and more willing to learn um, how to use these technologies in in a more sophisticated way they're going to see that the use of cryptocurrencies in a private fashion is financial self-defense. And they're going to value that and they're going to, they're going to demand new technologies and learn how to use the existing ones. Nice. So it is absolutely going to get uh, bigger and better and um, harder for all of the sensors <laughs> in the future. Nice. Now, your book, Anonymous Bitcoin, it's very thorough, comprehensive, 193 pages. It looks like it's really well put together with the uh, charts and the different pictures and just the style overall seems you did a really good job with this. Why would it be in someone's interest, someone who is looking to maintain financial security and privacy? uh, Why should they take a look at your book? 
Well, I think that uh, the book is going to give you a very good understanding of exactly what, uh, a clear understanding of what privacy in Bitcoin means right now. And it's going to give you an exact roadmap for how you can use uh, Bitcoin in a very private fashion. And I lay it all, you know, I laid the steps all, all out there, screenshots, um, leaving nothing, nothing up to imagination. Um, and since this is a space that is evolving so quickly, it's actually for me, I consider it to be a living document. Mm. So I'm making changes to it all the time. Um, and customers that purchase the book will, you know, be able to get notified about the updates and download the updates um, with just one purchase. They don't need to keep rebuying it. And I've also got a sort of kind of a premium package that uh, provides some video tutorials and whatnot to uh, to really like guide people that are not super tech savvy and make sure that they they fully understand everything that they need to do to uh, use Bitcoin as privately as possible. And I think, you know, it's an important thing to understand. Like I said, it's, it's financial self-defense. And um, this is how you get privacy and also how you, you keep yourself from thieves. You know, thieves are always looking for soft targets. And people that make their Bitcoins easy to find are going to be the soft targets for the, the thieves among us. Hmm. Right on. Excellent. Uh, can you tell the listeners where they can go to purchase your book and some uh, websites they can go to follow the work you're doing? Absolutely. So uh, they can go to anonymousbitcoinbook.com. Uh, that's where they can purchase the book and uh, find out some stuff about my about me as well. I got a little media section there where I have speeches and uh, the different shows that I participate in. I participated on a weekly basis in a bunch of different shows, uh, roundtables, and I, I've got a show that I host called Dark News. And um, that if they want to learn about Dark News as well, there's a website darknews.tv. And uh, that's where they can find out all about what I'm working on. Right on. Well, I appreciate your time and all the great work you're doing. I'm going to dive deep into this book and, and learn a lot. And I've learned a lot from you in this interview. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot for coming on the show, Christoph. Thank you, John. It was a real pleasure. Man, that was a great interview. Really appreciate Christoph's insights and the work that he's doing. Again, the website is Anonymous Bitcoin Book. Dot com anonymousbitcoinbook.com this has been sovereign btc episode 12 bitcoin privacy and you i hope you enjoyed it if you want to follow us on twitter you can check us out at twitter.com slash sovbtc like us on facebook at facebook.com slash sovereign btc and you can hear the program on the let's talk bitcoin podcast network at letstalkbitcoin.com or check us out at lrn.fm want to remind you one last time to use bitcoin live free and prosper